Hi, my name is Andy Chamberlain. I'm a writer and creative writing tutor, and you are listening to the Creative Writers Toolbelt, the podcast that gives you practical, accessible advice that you can apply straight away to your own writing. And welcome to episode 69 of the Creative Writers Toolbelt. We've been thinking about how we can take the research that we've collected and apply it to creating compelling settings and characters. Now, in this episode, we're going to focus on the objective that we have when we present that information. And that objective is this, that we want to make the reader aware of and engaged with settings and characters and scenes that we create in our work, but without them losing interest in the story. And the challenge we have here is to balance the need to give readers necessary information with the need to keep them engaged. If we meet this challenge well, we can keep the readers engaged in the story, even as we're setting the scene and introducing characters. But if we don't do it well, we'll lose the reader either because we've bored them with too much information, or maybe we've shared information at the wrong moment, or because we've managed to introduce inconsistencies or errors into the story. So we'll have a look at these problems and then explore the strategies that we can apply to overcome them and make a success of presenting settings and the scenes within settings and the characters within our work. So the first problem we have to contend with is the challenge of giving the reader necessary information but without boring them or distracting them from the story. We know that we have to give the reader a certain amount of information at the start of the story and this is fine so long as we choose that information carefully but it can go wrong. These chunks of information can kill the pace of the story You might have heard of them referred to disparagingly as info dumps. To give you an idea of what I'm talking about, here's an example of a story that grinds to a halt mid-action because of an info dump. Brad scrambled the last 20 yards to the helicopter, bullets flicking the dirt at his heels. He clutched the data tag that held the schematics in his left hand. Jump! shouted Aaron from the helicopter. He could hear the whine of the rotor blades building. This thing was about to lift. He planted a foot on the uneven ground and launched himself at the already rising copter, his right hand stretching out, lunging for Aaron's grasp. Something zipped across the left sleeve of his jacket and red bloomed across the frayed grey material. Erin's hand caught his wrist and pulled hard while the pain in his left arm kicked in. He hung onto the data tag, his legs scrambling at the lip of the copter. The noise of the rotor blades dialed up even further, clattering around him as the Bell UH-1Y Venom, known to those who flew in her as the Super Huey, lumbered into the air. The two General Electric T700 GE401C engines pulled them away from the dirt, and the GAU-16-A machine guns swiveled around towards the enemy. The engines strained to reach the 12.8 meters per second rate of climb, and the 58 feet of machine nosed up towards the service ceiling of just over 6 kilometers and cruising speed of 158 knots. The Super Huey's endurance of 3.3 hours and maximum potential speed of 164 knots should be enough to get them back to base, whilst the Hydra rockets could be used to deter anyone trying to fire on them from the ground. Now in this instance, we have some action where somebody is trying desperately to reach a helicopter, but that action is diffused because the author wants to tell us everything he knows about the helicopter that Brad is using for his escape. Maybe he's gone onto Wikipedia and found every fact he can about this helicopter and has decided to put it into the story. Now that is an info dump. Any excitement that the author had generated, any interest in the story has dissipated because we're going through the vital statistics of a machine. This is the worst sort of info dump because not only is the author giving us too much information, they're giving it to us at the wrong moment because we are right in the middle of the action. They should have focused on the action and just used the bare minimum of description for the helicopter that is needed to sustain that action through the scene. Let's have a think about errors and inconsistencies now. The other surefire way to alienate your readers is to present information that is inconsistent or wrong. And this is not a subjective artistic decision. This is within your control. 
do your research so that you know the information that you're presenting is correct. Some stuff is basic. So for example, don't have the getaway car in your story. Drive off the Williamsburg Bridge in San Francisco, when in fact the Williamsburg Bridge is in New York. Don't put Shakespeare's Globe on the north bank of the Thames when it was on the south bank. Some of this is a little bit more subtle. If you talk about the discovery of DNA by James Watson and Francis Crick, for example, be aware of the contribution to that work from Rosalind Franklin and Raymond Gosling as well. You might not need it, but know enough about the subject to know whether you need it or not. Another example, don't refer to Pluto as a planet just because you found that information in a book from the 80s. Pluto isn't a planet anymore. It was demoted to a dwarf planet in 2008. So the point here is as much as possible, make sure your research is up to date and accurate. Now, inconsistencies are also within your control. These divide into factual and spatial inconsistencies. Factual inconsistencies are where you seem to change a fact or feature about a place or person during the story in a way that is unexplained or is impossible. So if your protagonist has blonde hair, maintain that hair color in the story, unless there's an explicit reason why she has changed her hair color. If the river in your mythical town runs north-south, don't suddenly have it run east-west. If your village is completely surrounded by a forest, don't later on tell us that it is perched on the edge of a cliff. Now, spatial inconsistencies are a little bit more subtle, but they require the same degree of attention. When your characters are in a room, make sure you have a clear understanding of where they are. It's very easy for us authors to have an idea of where people are and what is going on. But if we don't tell the reader however clear it is in our mind, then they won't be able to follow when the action starts, when people leave and enter the scene, or the characters start to move around. Now this might seem like a little bit of an obscure point to you, but I found in my experience that it's a problem that happens again and again. We can have a very clear idea in our mind of what's going on in a scene, but if we haven't given sufficient description to the reader, when things start happening, they're gonna get confused. And when they get confused, they will emotionally disengage from the story. So let's have a think now about how we can seed information effectively into our story and achieve our objective, which, as I said earlier, was to make the reader aware of and engaged with the settings and characters of our work without them losing interest in the story. Now that means presenting the right information in the right way, in the right place in the story. We'll start with what I mean by the right information. What is it that we need to say? Now this comes from the output of the work that we did in defining the settings and characters of the story using the processes I talked about in episode 67 and 68. Of course, what we actually say in our story pretty much depends on what the story is. But a good guide for this is to look at the critical components of setting and character that I've referred to in previous episodes. For example, in episode 61, I talked about the critical components of setting and said that they were that the setting should be credible and immersive. That means that the setting that we present to our reader and the different scenes within it need to be believable, but they also need to be of sufficient interest and vividness and clarity that the reader can be immersed in them. So let me give you an example of this. In her novel, Rebecca, Daphne du Maurier provides us with a credible and immersive setting right at the start of her book when she's describing the grounds outside Mandalay. Here are those opening lines. Last night I dreamt I went to Mandalay again. I came upon it suddenly, the approach masked by the unnatural growth of a vast shrub that spread in all directions. There was Mandalay, our Mandalay, secretive and silent as it had always been, the grey stone shining in the moonlight of my dream, the mullioned windows reflecting the green lawns and terrace. Time could not wreck the perfect symmetry of those walls, nor the sight itself, a jewel in the hollow of a hand. Now in this description, Du Maurier balances the mystique of Mandalay, which provides the immersive elements of the setting with some specific detail. 
The perfect symmetry of the walls, the grey stone in the moonlight, the lawns and the terrace, these are all details which give the setting credibility. But it's also presented in an intriguing and mysterious way. For a start, it's not a literal description of something someone's seeing in real life, but a dream. And the first thing we're presented with is an unnatural growth of a vast shrub. And the narrator observes the fact that time can't wreck the perfect symmetry of those walls. And what I think Dumoria has done here is to create a perfect balance of the two critical components of setting, credibility, immersiveness, as she draws us in right at the start of the story. Now for character, we have talked about the two primary components being character essence and goal, motivation and passion. As an example of this, we can look at George Orwell's description of Julia from the novel 1984. This is how he introduces her. She was a bold-looking girl of about 27, with thick, dark hair, a freckled face, and swift, athletic movements. A narrow scarlet sash, emblem of the Junior Anti-Sex League, was wound several times around the waist of her overalls, just tightly enough to bring out the shapeliness of her hips. Just within those few words, Orwell has managed to give us some sense of the essence of Julia, her determination, her energy, a little bit of physical description, and of course, her vitality and sexuality. There's a delightful hint at her goals, motivation, and passions just in these few lines. So if these are examples of what we should say, we then come to the question, how should we say it? And the key to successfully presenting setting and character is to be sparse and specific in our description and to give that description clarity and energy. Now, some of you will be familiar with the term sparse and specific from previous episodes. For me, it sums up much of what good description needs to be, to focus on clear and precise details, to be brief and specific. Closely linked to those are the virtues of having clarity and energy. A description that is clear and in motion is all the more vivid for it. A setting or a character with energy or the implication of energy is that much more memorable and distinct in the reader's mind. Let me give you another example of this. This is taken from The Hunger Games. This is author Suzanne Collins' description of the games competitor Rue. She's the 12-year-old, the one who reminded me so of Prim in stature. Up close, she looks about 10. She has bright, dark eyes and satiny brown skin and stands tilted up on her toes with arms slightly extended to her sides, as if ready to take wing at the slightest sound. It's impossible not to think of her as a bird. The author has given us some very specific descriptions of Prim, but has also given her energy. We have the bright, dark eyes, the sense of her wanting to take wing, which is used brilliantly in this comparison to her being like a bird. Now, these descriptions I've quoted here also benefit from another useful tactic in giving your descriptions life and energy, and that is that they are all, to a degree, sensory. By that, I mean they all use an appeal to the senses, especially touch, sight, and hearing. Now, using the senses gives your description the precision and intimacy that will help your readers identify with the character or the setting that you're describing. To give you another example, in the Game of Thrones, George R. R. Martin says of his character Robert Baratheon that the smell of blood and leather clung to him like perfume. Now, this is a great example because, in fact, the sense of smell, when it's used appropriately, is a particularly powerful and evocative sense. And I really would recommend that where you get the opportunity and where you think it's appropriate, you use the sense of smell as one of the tools to describe character. Another great tactic for presenting description, especially information about plot or character, is dialogue. Readers can accept information much more easily if it's shared between characters in dialogue. In the Harry Potter series, J.K. Rowling frequently uses Hermione to explain, usually in brief clipped tones, what the context of a situation is, what they might have to face next, what is happening. 
This keeps the readers much more in story and saves the author from having to just give information as a description. And dialogue is also an ideal medium for sparse and specific delivery of information. Natural conversation is often brief and clipped, especially between just two people. And handled well, dialogue can present elements of plot, character and setting in a very compelling way. Take this brief example from the book Snowdrops by A.D. Miller. I said, how is your mother, Masha? Not bad, she said, but very tired, coming old now. I would like to meet her. One day, maybe. How is your job? I pretend to work. They pretend to pay me. Now, this small piece of dialogue could bear a lot of analysis, but for now, I hope you can see that its brevity actually helps to keep things moving and presents aspects of the characters. But remember, dialogue on its own won't cover for the injudicious use of the info dump. Just adding he said or she said to a splurge of information won't cut it. Your dialogue has to work as dialogue if it is to deliver on the objectives of setting and character. So let's move on to when we say something. And this brings us to the question of timing. Generally, you should only share information when it's needed. Now that can be at the start when a story needs to have some information to get the reader underway, perhaps about character, perhaps about setting but it might also come later, perhaps after a feature of a character has already been revealed when you want to give some explanation of what that means. Sometimes it's a positively good idea to delay information. So for example, why does Snape try to save Harry Potter's life in Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone when he seems to hate him so much? As readers, we see that happen, but we don't need to know why it happens straight away. The author keeps that information from us for the moment. We don't know what the significance of Bilbo's ring in The Hobbit really is. We only need to find that out at the start of The Lord of the Rings. So some information is best hinted at or deliberately withheld from the reader to intrigue them. And the murder mystery genre is a great example of this, where who did it and how they did it are pieces of information that are generally left until the last stages of the book. Some things should be shared early on, and this will include something about the principal characters as they appear, and their essence and their motivation just enough to give us an idea of their essence. In fact, the character essence should be established as early as possible, while goal, motivation and passion can sometimes be played out to us as the story progresses. And the same is true of setting and the scenes within it. As writers, when we're presenting a setting, it's a good idea to do as Daphne du Maurier does in Rebecca, and that is to present the setting early on in as succinct and compelling a way as possible, keeping in mind those objectives for setting that the setting should be credible and immersive. So to sum up, in this episode, we've talked about what, how, and when to share information about character and setting. We've highlighted the problems of info dumps, errors, and inconsistencies. We've covered what we need to say in terms of meeting the critical needs of settings, that they are immersive and credible, and the principal components of character, which are the character essence, and the goal, motivation, and passion of the character. We've thought about how to present our information with the help of sparse and specific description, the use of sensory language, and the use of dialogue. We've touched on the way in which character description can be enhanced by presenting it with clarity and energy. Finally, we've looked at when to seed information. The principle being that information is presented when it needs to be, and not before and not after. For character essence and setting, this tends to be early on. But for goal, motivation and passion, it could well be that we give some evidence early on, but only explain what's happening later in the story. So that's all for now. In this episode, I have quoted from Rebecca by Daphne du Maurier, published by Virago, 1984 by George Orwell, published by Penguin, The Hunger Games by Suzanne Collins, published by Scholastic, 
A Game of Thrones by George R. R. Martin, published by Harper Voyager, and Snowdrops by A.D. Miller, published by Atlantic Books. I have also referred to J.K. Rowling's Harry Potter series. And the passage with the helicopter in that I was so critical about, I wrote myself. I'll get some show notes up on Pinterest for the episode. We also have a group on Goodreads. Go to goodreads.com, look up the Creative Writers Tool Belt. Incidentally, I have put a couple of questions for listeners on the Goodreads group, so please do go there and see if you can help me out. I'd also like to remind you that I am once again teaming up with my colleagues Mark Finney and Emma Newick from First Page Courses to present the 2016 Lake School of Writing, a one-week residential course in the Lake District. Now this year the course will run from 31st October to 4th of November and the genre we're focusing on is crime writing and we are delighted to have award-winning author Mari Hanna joining us this year. Mari is the author of the Kate Daniels series, which has been optioned for TV. Now, we're also going to be looking at how you, as an author, can build an audience through blogging with local Lakes blogger Kate Pipe, and also how to build an author platform with another crime writer, Wendy H. Jones, who's the author of the Shona McKenzie series. And Wendy was a guest on episode 54 of the podcast. We're going to have a great week. There'll be lots to learn and you'll get a chance to have your work critiqued by one of the resident tutors. So whatever genre you're writing in, please do join us. You can drop me a line for more details, andrew at andrewjchamberlain.com or you can sign up at the First Page Courses site. That's firstpagecourses.com. I'll see you there. So that's all for this episode. As ever, thank you for listening and goodbye. (laughs) 